thought to possibly be etymologically derived from the Greek words eurus and ops, which mean roughly wide and face, respectively. Europa is also a character from Greek mythology, the daughter of a Phoenician king who Zeus had a thing for. So Zeus transformed himself into a bull, seduced her, and while still in the shape of a bull, had a trio of kids with her on the island of Crete. Those kids, all sons, became judges in the underworld. So one of the mainstream theories about the origins of the name of the landmass we now call Europe is that the Greeks may be referred to it as a wide-faced landmass, which it arguably is. It's wide rather than tall, based on how we usually portray such things cartographically. But it also may be stemmed from this mythological character in some way. This Greek term then maybe filtered through Latin and thus ended up in English as Europe. There's another theory that the name may be originated with a Phoenician word, Arab, which means something like evening or west, and the Akkadian word, Arabu, which means something like to go down or set, referring to the sun. Mesopotamian cultures, which, as far as we know, are the origin places of what we might call civilization, are generally east of what we today call Europe, and thus to their west would be something that you might call the land of the setting sun, or the western land, and the term for this meaning would sound something like Europe. There's a chance, then, that the concept of Europe as a place either originated at the dawn of human civilization named as such because it was the place to the west of said civilization, where the sun seemed to set, or it was thus named because it's wide, east to west, and was maybe referenced in relation to a Greek mythological character in some Homeric hymns, though there's a chance that the term, used in those hymnal contexts, were actually referring to some other location. Whatever the derivation of the term now used to refer to this part of the world, The European landmass is generally considered to be one of seven continents, segmented from the larger Eurasian landmass and the larger still Afro-Eurasian landmass by the Mediterranean Sea in the south and the Ural Mountains in Russia, the Ural River south of that, all the way down to the Caspian Sea, the Caucasus Mountains, and eventually the Black Sea to the east though that south of Russia border is pretty rough and not universally applicable or accepted. While there are geographic rationales for separating this continent from the others, much of the modern delineation is political and traditional, rather than strictly landmass-based. Iceland, for instance, which is closer to Greenland, which is part of North America, and on a different tectonic plate than mainland Europe, is often considered to be European for cultural reasons and political reasons, and because it's closer to mainland Europe than mainland North America in terms of raw distance. Likewise, delineations in the eastern portions of the continent are fairly wobbly, with portions of Russia considered by many to be European Russia, which contains all of the country's most populous and developed cities, while the rest of the comparably rural portions of the country are said to be part of northern Asia. 
the Caucasus mountain range, tucked between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, contains Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, alongside parts of western Russia. And these countries, too, are sometimes considered to be European, but also sometimes considered to be Asian, depending on context, tradition, and in some cases, political expediency. What I'd like to talk about today is the more recent history of Europe and its political union, including a recent move made by this union that is some prognosticators predicting a new European economic and cultural renaissance. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. In a 2019 op-ed published in a few dozen regional newspapers, French President Emmanuel Macron called for a new European renaissance that would be defined in part by an overhaul of how the European Union operates. This appeal was made about three months before an impending EU parliamentary election, and thus it's prudent to view this call to action through the lens of a political campaign someone wanting to gain more influence within a system that is vital to their own political future. But it also seemed to support an overall expansion of some of the things that seemed to be working within the EU, while iterating away some of the traditions that were still part of the system, despite potentially holding the union back in many possible ways. Some of the calls to action were consistent with existing movements within the union, Zero carbon emissions by 2050, cutting pesticides in half by 2025, a Europe-scale environmental bank and a Europe-scale sanitary force to watch, finance, and enforce various measures related to greenifying the economy and maintaining safety standards in the intra- and inter-continental food supply. One of the most surprising aspects of this letter, which presented what amounted to a list of a dozen ideas for how things should progress moving forward, was how widely accepted it seemed to be, and how cordial it was to even the recently Brexited United Kingdom, and increasingly anti-democratic leaders of Hungary and Poland. Macron called for increased unity, but with clear indications of national distinctiveness, for more independence for member nations from those institutions. He called for respecting the union's tenets and rules, while also leaving wiggle room for mutually beneficial treaties and ad hoc arrangements with outside nations like the UK. In other words, part of why this appeal may have been so widely acceptable was that it didn't really do a whole lot. It seemed more like a reassurance of the status quo, if perhaps a slightly iterated version of it, but iterated in directions that didn't seem to be particularly worrisome or challenging to anyone, which also implied that these changes were relatively toothless if they were, in fact, eventually applied. Analysts have thus kind of shrugged it off as a non-event, Rather than as an op-ed that catalyzed a renaissance, it's been labeled as a call to action used as a move during an election cycle, and very little more than that. Far more meaningful, in the eyes of many European politicos, scholars, and analysts, is what happened in July of 2020, a little over a year after that European Renaissance piece was published. 
The article that I'd like to start with today comes from the Financial Times, and it's entitled, EU Recovery Fund, How the Plan Will Work. This piece outlines a decision that was finalized on July 21st, 2020, at a special meeting of the European Council, the central decision-making body of the European Union. The decision is an announcement of a plan to support the economies of member states of the EU, the structure of the Union itself, and how this plan will function, how it interoperates with the Union's larger set of financial plans, and how it plugs in with their other COVID-19 pandemic-related efforts. The plan itself was the consequence of a realization that the pandemic was completely screwing up their continental economy, that they had managed to tamp down their most severe infection hotspots, at least for the moment, and thus were in a decent position to rev their economy back up, but that they would need to work collectively to be able to do so on a scale proportionate to the issue that they faced. What they eventually landed on was a recovery fund called Next Generation EU, which would be made up of 750 billion euros borrowed from financial markets. About 390 billion euros of that sum will be distributed as grants to member states, and the balance will be distributed as loans, the former of which won't involve interest payments, the latter of which will. Member states will prepare recovery plans for their own governments, which will include reforms that align them with the larger plans of the European Union, and for better resiliency in the face of this and other potential future disasters. Doing so unlocks their allocated share of this fund, and those countries that measure up will receive their funds during a distribution period between 2021 and 2023. A comparably smaller chunk of this package, about 77.5 billion euros, will be used to top up the growing EU governing bodies' budgetary programs. This decision was quite contentious, both in terms of the size of the money pot and in terms of how it would be distributed, the basis of the terms nations would have to meet in order to get their slice of the pie. Eventually, They were able to get the plan through, but only by acceding to changes that ensured any nation in the EU could contest money being allotted to any other member, which would then lead to a no more than three-month-long investigation to check into the validity of these claims, and also by removing a mechanism that would force those requesting funds to abide by EU democratic value standards, something that Hungary's Viktor Orban and Poland's Andrzej Duda weren't too keen on, being anti-democratic leaders themselves, though there is still a safeguard that allows a weighted majority of governments to block payments to member nations that are demonstrably violating the rule of law, which may or may not give them the desired by some ability to force Hungary and Poland back onto a more democratic track, using these funds as an incentive. There were plenty of rationales for even Orban and Duda to fall into line with this plan, though, even lacking such protections for their regional peculiarities. It's estimated that the biggest member nations of the EU, like France, Italy, and Spain, will economically shrink by about 10% in 2020 alone, and that the EU's overall economy will shrink by 7.4%, leading to a tidal wave of job losses, the collapse of businesses and maybe entire industries, 
and the potential mass migration of people across borders, which could cause further instability alongside further spread of COVID and other diseases. All of the member states have a vested interest in making sure that this doesn't happen then, in part because they face increased regional risk if they don't, but also because their most vital, most closely tied economic partners will be weakened if they fail to do something, which in turn would reduce their own near-future and potentially medium or even long-term future prospects. This agreement, within the context of the EU at least, is unusual. Recall that one of the rallying cries behind the Brexit movement in the United Kingdom, which led to the beginning of the formal exit process for the UK from the EU, was that Brussels, meaning the EU governing body, which is located in Brussels, seemed to have too much power, and allegedly wouldn't allow the UK government to make their own decisions about important things. A notion that, while inflated, distorted, and outright lied about quite a bit during the build-up to the Brexit vote and after, is not based on nothing. It's a common criticism amongst member states of the EU that they are not able to be their own countries in some ways because of their ties to all these other countries with, at times, different or even diametrically oppositional interests. This move, which brings union member states into even closer accord, is thus quite an interesting development, especially on the economic level. Barron's, which is a publication that specializes in economic considerations, called this Europe's Hamiltonian Moment, referring to the U.S. statesman Alexander Hamilton, the star of the eponymous Broadway play and the digital streaming Disney production of that play, referring to Hamilton's efforts to unify the then-burgeoning United States into a more intertwined economic union. Hamilton was concerned that post-revolutionary war, which was what separated the U.S. from British rule, the southern state of Virginia would not be too keen on the idea of taking on New York's comparably quite massive debt, which could lead to fractures in the new country's solidarity. To sidestep that problem, he created a means through which the U.S. federal government, the government over the country rather than the governments of individual states, would take on the debts of all 13 state governments, which was a nice breath of fresh air for those comparably smaller governments but it also had the knock-on effect of knitting them all the more tightly together because they now had a central interest in this federal government that was taking up responsibility for some of their financial considerations. In the European Union's case, a remarkable situation, the global COVID-19 pandemic, has caused the Union to scramble and to become more aware of their interdependence on each other and to consequently develop a solution that, in the minds of many thinkers, would have been nearly unthinkable mere months before the pandemic emerged and its shape became more known. The news of these tighter economic ties has been well received by the global financial markets, with activity in the area surging on the news, and murmurs about whether the euro will replace other currencies, like the U.S. dollar, as the most reliable, secure, and commonly accepted currency in the world, if this trend of increased EU government centrality continues at least. Of particular interest within that facet of this conversation 
is whether the euro could replace the USD as the world's reserve currency of choice. The currency that governments keep on hand to trade with each other, basically. And because of this use case, such currencies need to be reliable and hold their value well. And the USD has traditionally been dominant in this role because of its relative stability. Because of the United States' fairly terrible response to the COVID-19 pandemic, however, many prognosticators are wondering if we might see a near-future scenario in which the USD is usurped from this position, with the euro stepping in to take its place. Data showing that payments for Russian exports to China have been paid for with euros more than USDs in 2019 and 2020 for the first time seems to support this possibility. Though this prediction has been made before in previous years and proved to be a flash in the pan, a speculation that didn't go anywhere, so take it with a grain of salt. Part of why this is so notable, though, is that being the country that produces and backs the world's chosen reserve currency gives that country quite a lot of soft power and prestige. The EU taking that crown from the US would be a significant economic and reputational coup. At the moment, though, the next step is to wait and see if this EU deal even does what it promises to do, something that is in significant doubt. Some experts on the region, like Nicolas Veron of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, has said, though, that even if it doesn't work as well as some hope, or if it doesn't really work well at all, it's still important for what it represents. In a piece published in Vox on the subject, he said that this change in stance was, quote, institutional evolution, end quote. Meaning, even if the outcomes aren't as positive as those working on this plan hope it will be, it could still change the union's governance in such a way that they have more power in the future, and therefore more weight to throw around, both in terms of helping out member states, but also on the international stage. Now, the EU as a body still needs to ratify this plan, and the European Union MEPs, people who have been elected to represent their country in the European Parliament, have already responded with a list of issues, including that the number proposed is quite small for the problem at hand, that some countries like Poland and Hungary may be getting away with autocratic crimes because of the franticness with which this budget was proposed, and that the overall EU budget is being shrunk to make room for this stimulus. And some of them believe that the stimulus should be additional on top of the usual already planned for budgetary amount. Money being a finite thing, of course, there are downsides to increasing one budgetary number without decreasing another, and because of the structure of the EU's decision-making process, it may not be possible to get Orban and Duda to return to some semblance of democracy using this sort of tool, as that pair could potentially block the stimulus if they don't get what they want, which in this case seems to be the ability to partake in the stimulus while also reinforcing their hold on power within their respective countries. Further, although more money would be a smart idea, by many experts' calculations, quite a few of the wealthier European nations are perhaps understandably concerned that they will be bankrolling much of this debt the Union would be taking on, and are thus prudently questioning how much debt they, as individual countries within a larger Union, should be taking on 
for the other countries in that union. The initial burst of enthusiasm about this decision has quieted a bit, as more of the specifics have been questioned and as the pace of it has become more clear. This is not something that will happen immediately, but something that will take several years to completely roll out. And even then, it may not be something that solves the problem that everybody is hoping to solve. It's worth remembering, too, that this is not the first time that the EU has tried to cope with a financial crisis, and the last time it happened, things went sideways pretty spectacularly even to the point where there were serious questions as to whether the European Union would even survive long enough to make necessary changes to its structure. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, and a major player in that previous crisis and in this one, but who, to some, was the major villain of that previous crisis because she knew Germany would be bankrolling a lot of the bailout money for countries like Greece and, as a consequence, wanted to implement a great deal of austerity measures that only amplified the problem as a consequence of that, had this to say on this new round of potential changes. Quote, Europe has shown it is able to break new ground in a special situation. Exceptional situations require exceptional measures. End quote. Now again, as a supporter of austerity and a tightly held pocketbook, and spending as little as humanly possible to come out of a financial crisis last time around, this is a fairly dramatic change in stance from, again, one of the most powerful people in the European Union today. Whether or not that newfound flexibility and willingness to spend will make a difference in how this new crisis plays out, though, is anyone's guess. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Two Like the Lightning, T-O-O, Two Like the Lightning, by Ada Palmer. I actually stumbled upon this book because I read something else that Palmer had written, and it was just really good. An excellent sense of historical context. Her analysis and insight was really fantastic, and so that led me to this book, which is actually a work of fiction. But it does have a hint of the historian in it, as the narrator of this story is someone who exists in a relatively distant future who is attempting to write the documentation of a historical event in a style that to him is quite historical, which is the style in which we write things today. And that's interesting in part because this type of writing is not done in his time and therefore he's not particularly good at it, but also because he lives within a society that has radically shifted biologically and sociologically, even to the point where gender and things like that, as we consider them to be normal, or at least typical today, don't exist. So his or her relation of this story is consistently flipping back and forth between gender pronouns because the narrator is not certain which one to use and then kind of goes off on a tangent trying to explain why they used that particular pronoun. It's really fascinating. The story by itself is quite good and interesting, and I believe it's the first book 
in a series that hasn't been written yet, so I'll probably end up reading the next book as well. But all by itself, it's quite a fascinating read in terms of the political intrigue and the world-building that takes place, and the way in which it's presented, which to me was one of the most enjoyable aspects of reading it. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Two Like the Lightning by Ada Palmer. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.